Mark 12, 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. This may be a, a passage of scripture that is familiar to uh, many in the room, but may we hear it with fresh ears, may we see it with fresh eyes, may we experience it with open hearts to what you might speak to us today. Give us insight into how this might guide us in the week or weeks and months ahead as we think about our own devotion to you and how that plays out in our giving of ourselves and giving to others as well. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sometimes I think we forget from week to week, especially when we're following through the lectionary passages, that, that there's a larger context for this specific gospel passage. For instance, today's passage doesn't, doesn't stand alone. It builds upon last week's teaching about loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, right? Remember that, that Jesus picked up that theme from Deuteronomy 6? and carried it forward, and then that Levitical teaching about not bearing a grudge against your neighbor, but to love your neighbor as yourself. But those, those two things together were the greatest commandment. And after that teaching in Mark's Gospel, something that the lectionary skips over is this brief little exposition by Jesus on Psalm 110. And so Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and right before this passage starts the, the verse, and verse um, 37 ends with the phrase, the large crowd listened to him with delight. They were entertained. Their ears were tickled. They were, they were intrigued. And so they were, they were leaning in to see what Jesus was going to do or say next. When we get to today's passage, it's kind of broken down into two sections. Sometimes we run them all together, but it really is two. First, Jesus warns the crowd, right, this group of people that have gathered around, he warns them about the teachers of the law. And then secondly, after this warning, 
Jesus draws to their attention this widow and, and gives some observations regarding giving. First, let's take a look at Jesus' warning to, to the crowd about the teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law often get depicted in a way that is so over the top that we can't possibly see them as redeemable or relatable. And I think that that's a mistake. You know, one, of the, one of the interesting things of working with children for the better part of the last three decades is that I get to see all sorts of cartoon versions of the scriptures, and they're always portraying these people as the biggest snobs, you know, obviously so over the top, objectionable, that I think, what, you know, it, it's a caricature. And so it's hard to relate to them. But how does one go from being a religious example, which the teachers of the law were, um, were endeavoring to be, to someone who devours widows' houses? Being a devourer of widows' homes is bad PR. Would we, would we agree? If you are seen as being someone who devoured widows' houses, that's not something that teachers of the law would want to be actively engaged in. If they were op openly involved in a scheme that involved stealing the homes of widows, do you think the people would permit that? I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think so. Not for a moment. They would lose their moral authority. And just like if the, if the pastors here in the Tri-Cities, if we got together and we said, hey, we've got an opportunity here to make a little money. And we had some sort of scheme put together where we were going to fleece our flocks of, of their wealth. It wouldn't take too long, I think, before you wouldn't have much to do with us. Amen? So, and Jesus had to point this out. He had to warn them and say, this is, this is what's going on. So, in Jesus calling them out as thieves, I, I wonder why. why. Why was that necessary? I believe that this is where some of my expertise in how trauma affects people, individuals or groups, might be helpful. Because I think this passage gives an opportunity to see how traumatic the impact of certain systems humans set up can be, and why they should be examined. You don't have to study the effect of, of uh, trauma to understand that sinful people, apart from the Spirit's intervention, will create sinful systems that perpetuate the trauma of sins. Now, likely for some listening now, their nerves and their ears are tingling a little bit because, uh, and their blood pressure might have gone up a few points because they're wondering, is Chris about to get political around the subject of systematic racism or societal injustice or the like? Well, I think, unfortunately, that your reaction to me even maybe bringing up some of these things is, is the result of the same terms being used by a lot of folks on a variety of issues not necessarily talking about the same thing. So let me calm a few hearts right now. Let me just calm, you can take a deep breath. 
So what I see going on in this passage is not the same thing as the discussion around systematic racism or classism, where the fundamental premise is that one race or class is purposefully established and is still perpetuating a system in order to systematically oppress another race or class. The discussions of the impact of systems on racial oppression isn't in this passage, and I'm not going to inject it. But there is a spiritual principle that Jesus is alluding to here that has a much wider impact than oppression based on race or class, and that pits one person against another. See, what I think is going on here is, is an example of a spiritual principle that we saw in our study of the book of Ephesians. So we were going to, we didn't spend a lot of time on it yesterday. But in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Paul warns the church about a battle that we are in. I like how the J.B. Phillips translation captures the spiritual systems that are arrayed against God's purposes and God's kingdom. J.B. Phillips translates Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 this way. It says, in conclusion, be strong, not in yourselves, but in the Lord and the power of his boundless resource. Put on God's complete armor so that you can successfully resist all the devil's methods of attack. For our fight is not against any physical enemy. It is against organizations and powers that are spiritual. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Therefore, you must wear the whole armor of God so that you may be able to resist in its day of power. And that even when you have fought to a standstill, you may stand your ground. You see, it's, it's easy for us to characterize the teachers of the law and, and the rich people later on in, in the passage that are giving large amounts of money as the, the precursors of modern-day cheats like Doc Gallagher and Condemn. Then it's about some bad individual or group of individuals that we can stop thinking that has anything to do with us. Doc Gallagher. Did anybody know Doc Gallagher? Well, he was in the news last week from the Associated Press, November 2nd, 2021, Fort Worth, Texas. A, a Texas radio host was sentenced to three life prison sentences Monday for a Ponzi scheme in which he built elderly listeners out of millions of dollars. William Neal, Doc Gallagher, also got a 30-year prison sentence from the State District Judge Elizabeth Beach for his August guilty pleas. And these sentences are to be served concurrently. The sentencing came after more than a dozen senior victims testified during a three-hour court hearing about losing anywhere from $50,000 to $600,000 invested in the Gallagher Financial Group. Some said they had to sell their homes, borrow money from their children, or had to take part-time jobs in order to supplement their Social Security benefits. Quote, Doc Gallagher is one of the worst offenders that I have seen, said Lori Barnell, chief of the Tarrant County District Attorney's elder finance fraud team. Gallagher, 80 years old, and his Gallagher Financial Group advertised on Christian radio with the tagline, see you in church on Sunday. He promoted his investment 
business in books such as Jesus Christ, Money Master, and on Christian radio broadcasts. Gallagher has been behind bars since his March 2019 arrest on similar charges filed in Dallas County. In 2020, he pleaded guilty to those charges and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He was indicted in Tarrant County in August 2019. Quote, he ruthlessly stole from his clients who trusted him for almost a decade. He amassed $32 million in loss to all of his clients and exploited many elderly individuals. He worked his way around churches, preying on people who believed he was a Christian. Barnell said in the statement. It's easy to shame cheats like this individual and miss the fact that there was a system set up that encouraged the church to engage with this individual and made the swindle possible in the first place. Likewise, I don't see in this passage, if you're visualizing what Jesus is, is doing and saying, how he's interacting with his disciples, there's no moral outrage on the part of the disciples when they're observing the flowing, ornate robes of the religious elite the ostentations giving of the rich, and then the obvious impact that the system was having on the poor that had to prop up this whole religious economy. This widow being one small example. Jesus had to draw their attention to it. I don't think they would have noticed. I don't think they would have had a problem with it. But what does the scripture say? It says Jesus called his disciples over. All this was going on with the assumption this was just how the world worked. And Jesus said, hold on, let's huddle up. I got a word to say about this. So on to the observations regarding giving. Kind of the second part of this passage. Jesus calls this, this large crowd listening to him in delight, and in particular his disciples, to examine what I'm sure that all of them just assumed was the way things had to work. Maybe even the way God meant for things to be set up. Because after all, they're the teachers of the law. They're the rich people. They're the example of those whom God has blessed. So maybe it's how God wanted things to be. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And the religious establishment existing to assuage the guilt of the rich by making a show of caring for the disadvantaged. Does any of this sound familiar to you? A few notes, though, before we draw any hard and fast conclusions. How little did the widow give? I found this information from the editors of the New Living Translation of the Bible to be helpful. Now, the Greek text in Mark 12, 42 says that she dropped in two small lepta, which is the same as a quadrantis. That clears it up for everybody, right? Yes, I got it now. Yeah, clear as mud, right. Yeah. Um, if the reader has an intuitive sense of the value of two lepta, I don't think so. But 
But Mark even gives us a clue about what they're worth, these two small left of the Jewish coins, that they're equal to a quadratus, which is a Roman. And does that help any? <laughs> no, no. All right, so most of us have been taught that the widow's offering was something like two pennies. And a penny has very little value in today's economy, right? I mean, you can you can walk by and see a penny on the ground. Is it worth bending over to pick it up? There's a reason a lot of them are lying on the on the ground because a lot of people are like, no, nope, it's not even worth bending over for that. Now, in the first in the first century, quadratus was equal to about 1 64th of a denarius. And a denarius was considered fair pay for a day's, day's work, all right? A day's wage. So if today's wage for a laborer in the U.S. is about $15 an hour, that comes to, to $120 for an eight-hour day. And at this rate, 1 64th of that day's wage would be $1.88. $1.80. So we're just going to round it up to $2. And we could say that the widow dropped basically $2 coins into the collection box. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that makes a difference. That feels different than two small coins worth only a few pennies. And this is where the connection to the Old Testament passage that we read earlier, that widow of Zarephath, comes in. $2 would be enough to buy a little oil, a little flour, bake a small loaf, eat one last meal, and die, or wait to die. Two dollars versus two cents. I, I think it makes a difference as to where the widow's heart is at. Two cents, I mean, she could have found that on the ground walking back to her home, but $2, that's a little harder to come by. She gave what amounted to her last opportunity to provide for herself by purchasing the ingredients for a meal. And in faith, she gave that to God. Even, doing, even if in doing so, she was participating in a system that was corrupted by unscrupulous men. But where does that where does that leave us? Where did that leave the widow? I believe that Jesus didn't just use her as a sermon illustration, knowing that she was going to go home and die in hunger if she had a home in the first place, because maybe she's one of these widows who has had her home gobbled up by the religious elite. I think we can assume that God provided for her like the widow of Zarephath has provided for her. Not because we're reading into scripture something that's not there, but because we know of God's character from the whole of scripture and can trust God to act in a way that's consistent with that character. Can you imagine Jesus pointing this widow out? I mean, he, he knew she was gonna be in the temple that day. He knew what she was going to do that he was going to have an opportunity to point this out to his disciples. Do you think he would have just let her go home to die? Does that sound like the Jesus we worship? No. No. Right? So I don't, 
I don't think that's the point. Like, oh, wow, look at her great sacrificial giving. She gave the, the last little bit she had, and now she's going to go home and croak. As if that's something we're supposed to do as well. This brings to us a significant point that I, I would like to draw your attention to. The question of commendation versus command. Sometimes we read something like this and we think it's a command for us. And if we're not doing something even similar to what the widow is doing, then we feel bad. That we're not, that we're not all in like she was. Right? That we haven't pushed it all to the center table and said, alright God, you've got it all. The widow was commended for her attitude of heart, her devotion, not her sacrifice. If it was her sacrifice that impressed Jesus, this would have meant that Jesus was impressed by her works. God is not impressed with our works. God's not impressed if you throw a hundred dollar bill in the offering versus a ten. Can you buy the Lord's favor? No. God's not impressed with our works. We are made righteous by faith and trusting in the sufficiency of grace. So while the widow is commended, this sort of proportional giving is not commanded. We are instructed by the whole of Scripture, not just one passage. So let's avoid the pastor's easy guilt trip. Right? A lot of times this is the passage that's taught on Stewardship Sunday, and it's like, all right, pull out your stewardship cards. You know, and then unless you've got several zeros in that card, you're meant to feel guilty that you can't do more or aren't doing more. So let's avoid that pastor's easy guilt trip of sort of sermon meant to induce sacrificial giving and instead be instructed by, by the word and each be led in our own hearts and the Holy Spirit's conviction as to what we should do. Okay, so I just want to give, as we wrap this up, I want to give a quick overview of some of the scriptures that speak to giving, to give you a sense of why, why this is a commendation and not a commandment. Jews, Jewish teaching was in Jesus' day and still to this day fairly clear that a minimum of one-tenth of one's income belongs to God and should be used for charity or other religious purposes. This is the measure handed down from the patriarchs, as Jacob himself said to God, of all that you give me, I will set aside a tenth to you, in Genesis 28-22. And this should come first, right off the top, as the Bible says, honor God with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, Proverbs 3-9. Furthermore, from the two agricultural tithes that are in the Old Testament, we learn that God does not intend for us to give more than one-fifth, or 20%. Of our means for religious purposes. Although Jewish saying, uh, teaching says that you can give up to one third of your estate to charity when you pass. However, in this life, it is forbidden to impoverish oneself by distributing all of one's wealth to charity, and one who does so is counted among the foolishly pious who bring destruction to the world. This is according to the exposition of the Torah by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, an American rabbi, author, and translator. So Jewish teaching is somewhere between a tenth and 20%. Malachi 3, 8 through 10, records God declaring the people's unwillingness to give God a tithe or a tenth as robbery. And then God asks them to test him by giving a full tithe and see if God will come through in blessing them and providing for all that they need. 
Jump to the New Testament. Zacchaeus in Luke 9, 19, verse 8, gave half of what he had to the poor and was going to pay back four times what he had cheated in. And Jesus commended him, saying, Salvation has come to this house today. In Luke 19, 9. Acts 4, 36, the early church. Joseph, also known as Barnabas, a Levite from the island of Cyprus, he sold a field and gave it all to the church. He sold a field, not his home, but a significant piece of real estate. So likely more than a tenth of his net worth, maybe more or less than half, but certainly not all. Finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul gives instruction for a collection for the Jerusalem church. He says, to those in Corinth, set aside something on the first day of the week in keeping with your income as an offering or gift to the poor in Jerusalem. According to the pattern laid down for the church in the New Testament, it seems like we should be expected to work to provide for ourselves and strive to be independent when it comes to our household needs. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It says, work with your hands, be dependent on no one. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul reminds the church that while he and his missionaries were with them, that they paid for their own food. And in chapter 3, verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians, he says, When we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, we read, each one should give as they have decided in their heart, cheerfully, not under compulsion. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. So, where does that leave us? It seems like it leaves us not trying to legally, legalistically try to find out a, the right percentage. 10%, 50%, no more than 20%, all in 100% like the widow. But give our heart, mind, soul, and strength in worship and follow the Spirit's lead. I think Jesus would ask us to examine how much of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength have been captured by worldly systems that make the Doc Gallagher's of the world possible in the first place. Where does our trust lie? Who has our devotion? And is our faith in God or in those who promise to enlarge our bank accounts? Are we putting on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's schemes, fighting against systems and structures that hurt the very people that Jesus has called us to advocate for and defend? Or like the disciples, do we, do we need Jesus to turn our heads and say, hey, you're missing it. There's something going on every day all around you but you apparently don't have a problem with that. Showing us where, by God's grace, we could be a part of the inbreaking of kingdom principles in our economies. Not just assuming that this is the way things got to be. And the church is a part of modeling that by how we care for one another, how we look after one another. Would you pray with me? God, in this season of harvest, 
in these weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, an American holiday that sort of devolved into uh, an excuse for excess, perhaps. Help us to truly be thankful and to be looking with eyes wide open to the injustices that, that we may just assume are the way this world works and we're not really called to do anything about it. Jesus, just as you commended the widow's faith, she wasn't trusting in her own ability to, to take that last little bit of money of hers and provide for herself. She knew that ultimately you were the one that was going to have to provide for her. Lord, help us to have that same trust and devotion. And as a response, give you all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength to truly place you first. In the name of Lord Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.